Father, thank you for our time together tonight to look into your word. Lord, thank you for your great love for us that has been manifested to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we ask uh, with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 that, that we would know the height, the depth, the length, and the width of your love. Father, that we would know just how exceedingly great it is. Thank you that you have given us the ability to comprehend your love for us in Christ. But Father, help us never to, to stop looking in your word to understand well, just the depth of that love and, and the depth of that sacrifice in the person of Christ. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity now to, to look into your word. We're thankful for uh, the reality of getting to gather together as your people. Lord, we're thankful for your spirit who works in and through us, through your word, to accomplish your purposes. And so, Father, we ask that uh, you would do that tonight. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's good to see you guys. Welcome back to those of you who are back from school for a little while. Um, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. This past Sunday, I began a message entitled, The Biblical Church is a Worshiping Church, and we looked at uh, the end of chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, and so tonight we will look at part two of this message. We'll pick up reading in, in chapter 11, verse 33, the entire context Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, renew by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is, uh, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As I said last time, we examined the final four verses of chapter 11, and we looked at the believer's priority in worship. That priority that the Apostle Paul so clearly proclaimed is God. He is referenced 11 times in his doxology of praise for, for the person of God. And hopefully, as a result of studying that together on Sunday, your hearts were stirred as mine was, to bask in the glories of the cross and the God who is completely sovereign over every aspect of our lives. Hopefully your motivations and intentions were refocused 
on the God whose wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable and past finding out. And hopefully you were reminded of how limited, finite, and dependent you are and how vast, infinite, and independent God is. That's always the goal when you read a doxology in Scripture is to see how big God is and compare His bigness and greatness to our insufficiency. Hopefully you were able to meditate on the point that that God is not like you. He is completely other. He is completely transcendent. He is all-wise. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. Prioritizing God in worship comes from knowing God deeply from His Word. It comes from meditating on the doctrine of sin because when we truly see God's grace and pulling us out of the bondage of sin that held us and chained us and rendered us dead and that He has justified us based on the shed blood of Christ by which He grants us perfect righteousness, our only response in worship is to give God His rightful worth. It is God alone who is to be the the focal point of worship. One final thing to note from Sunday as as we return to this text is, is that worship is not something we do, but rather we are worshipers innately. We were designed as creatures who worship by nature. Certainly as worshipers, there are many expressions of worship that take place in our culture, such as climbing the corporate ladder at any cost, such as sacrificing the church for the sake of entertainment. For some, it is saving the whales instead of saving the babies. For others, it is seeking to preserve the earth instead of using its resources as they were intended. Even the mass killing of people all over the planet for the sake of honoring a false god and a false mode of religion. As believers, we see these manifestations of worship as tragic and idolatrous, which which they are. So then you say, I want to prioritize God in worship, and I I recognize the the radical reality of who God is, and I am rejoicing with the only reasonable response to God, which is to give Him glory. What then does that practically look like? Because I don't want to look like the culture. I don't want in any way, shape, or form to reflect what the culture worships. I don't want to be worshipers like them. So what does it practically look like for a believer to worship as a worshiper of God? What does giving glory to God look like practically? What is my response to God to look like from a practical standpoint? The answers to these questions helps us 
to see where the rubber meets the road. It helps us to connect the dots and, and truly live out the theology that we know to be true. And that's often the problem, right? We can fill our minds with theological truth, with theological propositions. But then when it's time to act upon that truth, when it's time to live out that truth, Sometimes those dots don't connect properly. And so that's what verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 do for us. They give us the believer's practice in worship. Notice how Paul begins this final section of his letter. You remember there's four sections, condemnation section and Verses 1 through 3, the justification section in 4 through 5, the sanctification section in 6 through 8, and actually there's five sections, and the vindication section in 9 through 11, and now the practical section in verses 12 and chapters 12 through 16. He begins this final section of his letter, therefore. This is his conclusion to his discussion in the previous 11 chapters of his letter, and specifically, as we said last week, to the statements that he just made in the previous four verses. He says, as a result of everything I have written to you, I urge you or I exhort you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The idea concerning this The verb here that's translated urge or exhort is that Paul is currently, because it is a present tense verb, he's currently or actively urging believers strongly to continually, day by day, present themselves as a living sacrifice to God in response to God's mercy. Notice the instrument that Paul is using to strongly appeal to the believers. It is is the mercies of God that are described in the previous 11 chapters. Mercies such as propitiation by the blood of Christ, justification by faith on account of God's grace, imputation of Christ's righteousness, sanctification by the Spirit of God through the means of the Word of God, The fact that there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or future glorification. The truth of sovereign election. The proclamation of the gospel to the whole world and God's providence in making that happen. All of those mercies specifically applied to believers. Therefore, Paul says, I strongly appeal to you based on that truth that all of that is yours in Christ. I appeal to you. And these mercies which Paul is speaking of, they are, they are God's alone. They are divine. They are solely attributed to God. As we saw last time in verse 36, from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. These mercies that Paul is using as the motivation to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
they begin and end with God. And they are the instrument of Paul's exhortation. They are the motivation for our practice of worship. So you say, Paul, I'm motivated by the infinite mercies of God. What practice are you urging me to do? I get that. I understand the truth. I'm motivated by that. I'm in Christ. I love Christ. I'm appreciative. I'm deeply appreciative for all the work that that Christ has done for me and, and the work that the Spirit is continuing to do in me. What practice are you urging me to do? And you see that there in verse 12. It is, first of all, to present your bodies. To present your bodies. You are to to offer up your bodies to the service of God. The idea, Paul using this word bodies here, is, is the whole person. This is all of you. Every thought, every word, every action is to be offered to God in service. Being a partaker in these mercies of chapters 1 through 11 indicates that He owns you. And your life is to be about pleasing Him. We have to wrap our minds and our worlds around that truth. Those mercies of God that belong to us as Christians are from God, they have been imputed to us by God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as a result of that, we are owned by God. We belong to God. This body is not our own. Right? First Corinthians 6 tells us that. We were bought with a price. Therefore, we honor God with our bodies. And so we are not owned by ourselves, we are owned by God in our sole purpose as those who have received these infinite mercies from this gracious God is the fact that we are to be about pleasing Him. Paul goes on to describe further what this looks like. He says that you have to present yourself as a sacrifice If you want to practically worship God, which is your only reasonable response to Him, which is what verse 12 tells us, your life needs to be a sacrifice. You remember sacrifices, right? From the Old Testament, the act of slaughtering an animal and burning it To please God? Just go back to Leviticus chapter 1 for just a brief minute. Leviticus chapter 1. Let's look at a couple verses. Verse 10. But if his offering is from the flock, or of the sheep, or of the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall... Offered a male without defect. 
He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward, northward before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its sweat, and, its, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. Those are instructions concerning the burnt offering. It's one of several offerings that Israelites were responsible to offer. You notice there in the middle of verse 13, it says, And the priest shall offer all of it. The entire sacrifice was to be used as an offering to God. He was to do different things with different parts of it, cut it up into certain ways. But it was all to be burned and it was all to be offered to God. The whole animal was to be cut up and burned for God because this is the way that he had ordained things to be. This is how he set it up. Right? Because of sin, the shedding of blood had to take place for the remission of sin. This was the process in the Old Testament. This is why the sacrifice of Christ was so extraordinary, so wonderful. And we rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ because he, he, his sacrifice was final. We don't do this every night. Praise the Lord. But this is what they did. And think about how, how the pagan nations took this ritual because they took this ritual and they perverted it through idolatry and they even to the point of, of human sacrifice, which at one point the Israelites started to partake in. And eventually that's one of the reasons that God used Babylon and Assyria to come in and destroy the northern and the southern tribes. So you better believe that when the believers in Rome read this action concerning worship, they completely understood the metaphor that Paul was using. Every aspect of who they were was to be for God's pleasure. Every aspect of that goat or that sheep or that ram was cut up and burned. Why? What was the end of verse 13? Because it was a pleasing aroma to God. They understood that. They got the metaphor that Paul was using. But then notice the contrast that, that Paul makes concerning the sacrifice that he is calling for there in verse 1. He states that the, the sacrifice is, is not to be as the one in Leviticus 1, where it is cut up and burned. It is to be alive. The, the placement of this word, translated in our Bibles as living, is important to note in the original text. It could be translated rather, rather than living sacrifice, a sacrifice that is alive. And you say, wasn't that the same thing? Yes, it is the same idea, but, but the word where the word is in respect to the other word that it's modifying places the emphasis on that word 
living. Paul wanted to make that point. He wanted to contrast their idea of sacrifices, both the Old Testament sacrifices, specifically here with the Romans, those pagan sacrifices. He wanted to contrast that with it's, it's all of the sacrifice, but it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's alive. The point simply is this. That this is significant because Paul is painting a metaphoric picture with a distinguishing contrast. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were always, always dead. Now Paul is drawing off that illustration to say that believers are to offer themselves completely, just like a dead sacrifice of the Old Testament, but then they are now to do it in how they live. So there's a couple of different emphases that are important for us to understand. There's emphasis in the contrast that we are alive, we are not dead, but also in that reality of, of the entire sacrifice. Every thought, every word, every action, every single aspect of our lives is to be offered to God as a sacrifice in worship. But it's not just any kind of life, right? He says that it is to be holy and acceptable to God. Living in holy sacrifice. To be holy is the opposite of of defilement of uh, of the sinful body, which is brought about by sensual lust. Every aspect of our lives is to stem from the holiness that has been granted to us by Christ. Listen, one of the greatest black eyes on the Christian church today is the lack of personal holiness. And it's not getting easier. It is not easy to strive to be holy in the world in which we live. And unfortunately, these black eyes are, the, 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 the reality is it's true from the pulpit on down to the pew. Robert Murray McShane lived in the early 1800s and was a preacher who left an indelible mark in the country of Scotland in his short seven and a half year ministry. Died at 29 Pastor Tom talked briefly about him the other day. He's known for his his striving for personal holiness through the disciplines of his life. Two remarks of his specifically resonate with me, and they should resonate with you as well. One thing he said was, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. And the other one, this is a more well-known quote. You've heard it before, but he said, The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. That was the reality of his life as as a pastor. And again, it was very short-lived. And his ministry was only seven and a half years. But I think of these prayers often in relationships 
to in the relationship to being, you know, one of your pastors. But these should resonate with us and, and be applicable for every part of our lives. Right? Though he was a pastor and though that was his heart, that was his life, and it should be the same for every pastor, it should be also the same for every person who's genuinely in Christ. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be, God. You need to be holy, that is, separated from the thinking of the world and your thoughts and your actions and your words and pleasing to God, it says, through obedience to His Word. So you are to be a living sacrifice, which is holy and also acceptable to God, which is further defined by the clause there at the end of verse 1, which is your spiritual service of worship. What was Paul meaning by this further explanation? important to understand that this word spiritual is not the typical word used for spiritual in the New Testament. It's better translated as rational. Paul's use of a a different word here is for, for emphasis. Here's his point. The worship that pleases God is that which enlists our mind, our reason, and our intellect. It is contrasted with that that is automatic or mechanical. It connects back to the idea of bodies. The the whole person is engaged with God. How easy is it for us to show up here on Sundays, to show up here on Wednesdays, and to mechanically go through the motions? It's easy. Even before I came up here to preach, I was sitting back there thinking, as one of the songs, I was singing one of them, and I was disengaged for a moment thinking about other things. I'm like, Lord, it is just, it's so easy. It is so easy to disengage the wholeness of my person from worshiping you. To get so distracted by things. But, but the, the command upon our life, again, go back to the motivation, because of the mercies of God is that the entirety of our person is engaged with this holy God who's invited us to come into his presence by sending his son and crushing him upon the cross. That's an amazing truth. That should compel us. Compel all of us, every part of us. Worship God as we ought. Is your whole person engaged with God when you come to this place on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights? Listen, our worship is not to be ceremonial or just strictly duty or habit, but rather it is to involve the volition of of the part of the worshiper. Before you come and worship corporately, through song and through fellowship, through sitting under the word, through all of those wonderful things that God has given us, are you preparing your heart? Are you asking God for this? Are you asking God to help you to engage with him fully? 
as you worship. We are to delightfully worship God, not strictly out of duty. Jesus tells us that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. Our souls are to be enthralled with God in every aspect of our life, with with every aspect of our being. It is to happen uniquely and corporately on Sundays, but it is also to be characteristic of our daily lives. This, Paul says, is what is acceptable to God. Nothing less. The appeal that Paul makes to the mercies of God that constrains us to volitionally and emotionally fall on our faces before God in worship. And we do that, again, corporately, but we also do that with our daily lives of obedience. And every, everything you get to do as a, as a person who is in Christ, you can do it as an act of worship to God. You can write your term papers as an act of worship to God. You can take your exams as an act of worship to God. You can study those minute details of the cells or whatever else you guys study at this point in life. And you can do that to the glory of God. You, you can spend time with your friends and fellowship to the glory of God. You can go to work. You get up early and, and do a great job at the job that God has given you as an act of worship to the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. It is every aspect of our being, not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, but every day of our lives, every action, every word, every thought. That's what he is demanding. And I love how Paul says that. It's acceptable to God. That's what's acceptable. That's our response to God. Nothing less. How are you doing this with this in your life? Are you a living sacrifice? I'm sure if we're all honest with ourselves, there are multiple areas in our lives that we need to confess, probably repent of, we need to just ask the Lord, Lord, help me be as holy as a pardon sinner can be. <laughs> With your strength. There's a second aspect to the believer's practice of worship, and that's found in verse 2, and that is this, is to program your mind. Program your mind. We just spent several weeks examining what a programmed mind, uh, what a mind programmed by biblical truth looks like. And here, Paul tells us how to do that. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Before that positive command is given, Paul first gives a negative command. He says, Do not be conformed. And do not form according to the pattern or the mold of this world. 
the thrust of this word conform is, is outward and temporary. This is what the ways of the world are. They are temporary. They are fleeting. They are appearance-driven. And they are passing away. They live for the immediate here and now, for the moment. They are driven by instant gratification. Those are the patterns of the world. They live life on the surface for externals, for temporary pleasures. They are devoted to material things. They live according to the wisdom of the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4. 4. They are characterized as, as the present evil age, Galatians 1, four. The world's wisdom is human speculation and every lofty thing which is raised against the true knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul says, do not pattern your life after the world's ideology or agenda of turning everything into an idol and placing it before God. That's the ways of the world. That's conforming to the pattern in this world. Friends, we are called to live as aliens because we belong to an eternal kingdom and are only here on this planet to carry out the purposes of our master. Note that this is not a command to break from common and social order. It is not a call to break from decency and kindness to humanity. This is not a call for civil disobedience. This present tense command is calling believers to continually not pattern their lives after the world's thoughts, after the world's words, after the world's actions. Paul is saying fight against it. Don't Worship the idols of this world. Don't worship the idols of your flesh. Don't give in to temptation. Discipline your life to be an influence in the world and not to be influenced by the world. We looked at that. I believe it was in the, the third part of that message on the portrait of a biblical thinker. That we have to be committed to being the influencers, not the idiots on TikTok, but influencers for the God of this world. I mean, for the God of the Bible against the God of this world. We are to not be the ones who are being influenced. How do we do this? Well, it starts by not following the course of this temporal world. But Paul says, by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. You want to be, you want to practically worship God who is your priority, you must program your mind. This specific idea of this second command in verse 2 is to Keep on being transformed. It's not a, a one and done thing. This action happens to you how? By renewing or, or programming your mind. With what? With the Word of God. 
Renewing the mind causes inward, as opposed to the outward conformity of this world, inward change, fundamental change. Or as one commentator put it, we are to be constantly in the process of being metamorph, uh, metamorphosized by, re- by renewal of that which is the seat of thought and understanding. That is a hard word for me to say. That, that product of uh, being constantly in a season of change. That's, that's our minds. They, they're being changed. Not by conforming to the pattern of this world, but by being transformed. A constant pattern of transformation in our minds. This is contrasted with outer conformity, focused on the deep-seated permanent change brought about by the process of renewal. Renewing one's mind is the means by which a believer's life is transformed to do the will of God. Programming your mind for permanent change and thus active worship comes through reading, meditating, memorizing, memorizing, studying, and obeying the scriptures. If your life of worship is out of whack, no doubt you are disobeying these two commands in verse 2. Again, not to restate everything we've said in the last handful of weeks, but you know, I believe it was Steve Lawson who made this comment. He said, the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. This, this is an issue that is never going to go away. What goes in to your mind is going to influence you one way or another. Everything you take in, everything we absorb, everything we allow to enter, it's either going to influence us for the purposes of God and going to please Him, or it's going to influence us to displease God and to please our flesh. But there's nothing that's middle ground there. You don't have a neutral zone when it comes to your mind. We don't all get to come in and shake hands and give high fives in the neutral zone. No, no. There's one side or the other side. And so whatever you take in is influencing you to one of those two sides. Paul says... You want to live a life of worship? You want to respond with the practice of worship that you're supposed to respond with? Don't conform to the pattern of this world, not this side, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove that which is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. This is the side you want to be on. And Paul then gives the result of a transformed mind by the process of renewal. He says, so that you will approve the will of God. (laughs) This is not the idea of testing or proving God's will, but rather approving is related to to discovering God's will. Now listen, there's a lot of confusion about what the will of God is. Some mystical experience is needed to, to discover it, people think. We've talked about this at length various times, but 
We're not going to do that now. But let me give you just a couple of principles that will help keep you on the right track. Because this, I mean, this, this is so transformative. The stuff that you let enter into your mind is going to push you this way or it's going to push you this way. And we know that there is, there is a path that we are to be on as we are going to follow God, we're going to live for God. And if we actually put stuff in, which the stuff I'm talking about is the Word of God, that's what's going to renew our mind. We actually put that in properly. It's going to lead us over here. And what we're going to discover is the will of God for our lives. It's an amazing thing. It's actually possible. Let me just give you a couple principles. First of all, God's will that is being referenced here in chapter 12, verse 2, is, is His revealed will. It's already laid out in the Scriptures. The point is simply this. Your understanding of God's will for your life is directly connected with your participation with God's Word. The more you are programmed, the more you will understand and obey it. It's that, it's that simple. It is that simple to understand the will of God for your life. Now, this revealed will is commanded to be discovered in God's word and then to be lived within. Second, if you are obeying God's word, the principles contained in it, then you will have the freedom to make decisions operating from those principles. So it's not that soulmate who's hanging out at the Dairy Queen who you're wondering if you're ever going to meet, right? And if your soulmate's hanging out at Dairy Queen, move on to another soulmate, find another soulmate. But, but it's not about that, right? It's not that random mystical person who you're wondering if you're going to run into at the ice skating rink when it's snowing outside and you're going to have this wonderful experience. Listen, this, the reality is, is that if you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you are then able to approve, to figure out, to discover what the will of God is, and you're living within those boundaries, you have freedom within all of that world right there to make decisions. And so that person that you're looking to marry, if they fall within this category and the Word of God speaks to what that's supposed to be like, they're supposed to be believers walking with the Lord and you guys are on the same page, there's lots of good things there. If they're in this world, then guess what? You have the freedom to marry that person. We, we get caught up in thinking about the will of God in a really bad way. And we don't want to do that. We want to understand that it is, it is as simple as what Paul says here. <laughs> that if you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, the result is you are going to be able to discover what the will of God is, the perfect will of God. If you are living a life of worship by presenting yourself as a sacrifice and programming your mind with the word of God and not with the wisdom of the world, then you are living within the will of God and you are pleasing him. So go back to the command of Ecclesiastes, right? Enjoy life with every ounce of your being, but do it God's way. 
That's essentially what, what's being said here. So as you transform your mind, you have this freedom to operate within the will of God, and you have the freedom to enjoy the life that God has given you within that world. Finally, Paul gives a short list of adjectives describing God's will. He says they're good, they're pleasing, and they're perfect. It corresponds like this and is therefore applicable. God's word is good, pleasing, and perfect. When making decisions, if those decisions in any way go against what is stated as good in Scripture or pleasing in Scripture or perfect in Scripture, then the decision is not God's will. So as we close our time, you know, if we are going to be a biblical church who is, if we are going to be a biblical church, we're going to be a worshiping church. And praise God that Countryside Bible Church is committed to that. I mean, you're here for a reason. Most of you are probably here for a good reason. Maybe some of you are here for a bad reason, but that'll get fixed if you keep coming. The reality is, is that that's what we're committed to. This is who we are. We are committed to being a worshiping church. And if we are going to be a worshiping church, then it, it, it matters what the individuals of that church do with their lives. And so we respond to the mercies of God and give ourselves, our bodies, as, living, as being living sacrifices, all of us, every aspect of us. And we continually fight against forming to the pattern of this world and we are continually being transformed by the renewing of the mind, proving what the will of God is and living within that will. And you do that and you are a worshiper of God as you ought to be. Many principles. Let me just remind you of a couple, then I'll pray. Your worship of God directly correlates with your personal holiness, which is directly connected to your intake of God's word. Your worship of God directly correlates with your personal holiness, which is directly connected with your intake of God's word. And the second thing I would say is that the divine mercies of God are our motivation for practical worship. The gospel. If you're here tonight and you don't know the gospel, then you're not going to be a living sacrifice unto God. If you don't know the gospel, your life is formed after the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world, as we said, is can be basically summed up in the fact that it is temporary and fleeting and passing away. That's the direction you're going. That's where you're going to end up separated from God for all of eternity if you follow the pattern of this world. But if you come to God on His terms through Christ, which is what the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about, then you can get to chapter 12 and you can say, yeah, I'm going to offer my body's living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is my reasonable service because of the mercies of God in my life. 
And so how do you get there? Well, you come to Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn from believing whatever you're believing in that's not the gospel. And you embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. You trust in Him alone for salvation, that He is the one who can forgive your sin and reconcile you to a holy God. He's the one who can put you on the path to heaven. He is the one that can make your life count for eternity. And so if you're here tonight and you have not done that, I, I plead with you. I urge you, as to use Paul's language, to, to come to Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. We, we plead with you to be reconciled to God, to, to turn from your sin and embrace Christ. He is worth it. He is more worth it than you can ever imagine. And for you, believer, you look at the mercies of God and you're motivated for practical worship. Make that, make that your life. It's why you exist. You exist as a worshiper of God. Make every aspect of your life matter in that way. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. Father, take this truth. Just help the dots to connect with our souls. Father, please uh, help us to be the worshipers you've created us to be and saved us to be through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you for your amazing grace that you have lavished upon us in the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.